I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This is David and this is your new episode of Baselayer. I have Evan Chang, the co-founder and CEO of Mistin Labs with me here today. Evan, how are you? I'm good. It's great to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Mistin Labs is the folks that are responsible for SUI uh, and MOVE. We'll talk all about SUI and MOVE and what that is. Uh, very exciting things here. Uh, what we'd like to do, Evan, as I told you and what everyone else has, when you come on the show, um, we'd like to talk about your background, what you did before Mistin Labs and all the things that you're doing now. It is a very decorated background, uh, lots of experience in the technology fields. So Evan, if you could give us a little bit of background about what you did before Mistin, and then what got you into the world of Web3 and blockchains? Uh, yeah, as you say, I'm, I've been around the block for, for a while. I've uh, been in tech for 26 years. Did some startup stuff early on, then joined Apple and spent 10 years there where I was um, kind of the the guy who did a lot of the pretty difficult stuff at uh, the layer that's closest to bare metal. Uh, so I received the ACN Software System Award back in 2012, along with my you know colleague, Chris Ladner, um, uh, for working Albion, and that has impacted billions and billions of people, billions of devices. Every iPhone Android user, every developer user. Then I got recruited to Facebook to build out their programming language runtime organization. And a couple of years after that, I got the crypto bug. Uh, that was probably around, I would say, 20, late 26, early 2017 or 2017 and 2018. Time flies. Um, so... I recognize the opportunity. I recognize the impact opportunity as well as the, the the potential opportunity for myself because I see a lot of very very basic mistake that were made that that doesn't seem to have registered with the overall community, uh, and I want to do a lot better. Uh, what I couldn't figure out is how to go about it. Right, the the space was so new. It's a bunch of you know, a lot of enthusiasts, a lot of energy, but at the same time, you know, what I want to do require a lot of sort of domain expertise. And I just didn't think I could recruit a team to do that. So I I, I stayed inside Facebook. Um, and when the Novi, I mean, the Libra DM project came about, I, I jumped at it, right? So that was uh, my platform to build an, an amazing team and, you know, experts across distributed system programming language form of verification, cryptography, and that allow us to make a lot of innovative, uh, do a lot of innovative work. And and when, when it's obvious that DM wasn't going to work out for a number of other reasons, I I I you know took sort of a few of my co-founders on the best of the best in their business uh, and we formed Missing Lab and the rest is 
the rest is history. Yeah, as you said. So let's get into the issues, you know, into some of the things that you've seen. So again, we'll talk more about Sui. And obviously, you know, for those that are familiar with this, there is a language, a programming language called Move, which we will talk about as well, too. We're going to throw some things at you listening today. You'll hear things like, what is a DAG? And we'll talk about things in terms of objects and accounts. So don't be worried. This is all going to be abstracted. We'll be able to figure it out together. But what I'd love for you, Evan, as you alluded to and you, your experience in Web 2, you know, going to Web 3, in your opinion, very quickly here, what do you think is currently broken in Web 2 that is giving Web 3 a promise for the future? Centralization of the internet is actually extremely damaging to both businesses and society. And that's a cost, right? Imagine everything that's distributed over App Store, you know, they, they take 30%, right? The, these are added cost. Mm-hmm. So basically what you're seeing this is repeated over and over, like layers and layers, right? Every uh, content distribution, application distribution, it's all about network fact, right? They have the audience, they bring the business to, you know, to the people, either content, right? Instagram, Twitter, even, right? YouTube and all that. And TikTok, they take a cut, right? Or they use the content for profit. Mm-hmm. And very little is passed on to the content producer unless you're big and you can negotiate special deals. Uh, and, and every application is distributed over iOS App Store and Google App Store. And then you they take a cut, right? So there's, there's a lot of costs, right? And there's other sort of, you know, costs that may not be clear with everybody. Right, the, the the changes in policy uh, also means the the advertising, you know, kind of attributions got far worse. Right, so mm-hmm. businesses are paying the, paying the cost. Right, because to be frank, right, say what you would about you know these ad businesses and, and you know sort of targeted ads, they're a lifeline for small business. How they acquire customer and that cost is gonna dramatically uh, because you don't have good attribution mm-hmm. into sort of being controlled and how you reach your audience and all things add up, right? Even the bigger brands are struggling, right? How can they have a direct relationship? Right. Oh, how do they build community around that? So people are not really talking about this much, right? And I bet if uh, if there's a careful study being done, it's probably part, it's measurable in mm-hmm. terms of economic impact of the centralization, right? Remember, right. the intent was uh, conceived and designed to break that uh it's about peer-to-peer exactly anybody can create a efficient marketplace you can reach anybody so it's equally in the playing field now it's anything but right the bigger you are the more powerful you are right you see this in the stock market too right the bigger gets bigger and bigger bigger right the other ones struggle right it's it's network fed the the power law is is, it's kind of very very clear here you know, I would love to obviously get Tim Berners-Lee on one of these days as one of the forefathers of the internet, but we'll see if we'll be able to reach out to, you know, those folks and see if we can talk about how the initial architecture was supposed to be. But while I have you here, I found a great quote from you. It was actually one of your speaking engagements recently. And I really love this because I believe that for many years, the digital asset crypto industry has been focusing on trying to get a lot of the back end infrastructure in, in the front. 
the everyday user doesn't need to know how to do, you know, all of the things that we ask them to do, in my opinion, everything from key management to, you know, the abstracts of, you know, swapping assets and things of that nature, it should be fairly easy. And within their current work uh, and lifestyle. And so you recently discussed how the technology will fade to the background. I love that quote. Can you explain that a little bit more in detail? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the example, right, back in the days, right, you need a dial modem, right? You have to do something specific. You have to enter some command, you have to wait for the modem to beep, and then you connect to the internet, right? So it's a lot of friction. It's a lot of steps you have to take to get on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means very, very little, you know, adoption. Basically, it's early adopter. It's only the enthusiast that's putting up with a necessity. Right. And nowadays you don't think about it because Wi-Fi just works. Right. And you know, that's an example of what that means, right? It's like if you remove the the friction, you don't have to think about it. Adoption is just come naturally. Right. You know, in the crypto world, in the Web3 world, if you ask people to say, hey, wallets, paying gas, you know, or manage your key and all that, there's just gonna be a limit on how much adoption is gonna be, right? It's just not the right way to insert technology into product experience or insert the limitation of the technology into the product experience. And that's just pretty fundamental, right? That's mm-hmm. just how human work. Uh, you're always going to have a relatively small audience if that's the that's the experience, that's the onboarding experience. Right. I agree. And so let's, as I said to everyone, we're getting in a little bit into the inertia, the kind of the minutia of the things in SUI and move. And so for those, again, for unfamiliar, SUI is in the layer one blockchain world. You could think of them as a peer or competitor to others out there, although Evan probably will say that they are not. Uh, and I can completely appreciate that because there are differences in the design and the mechanisms here. And one of the things I would love for you to start to explain is that there seems to be this notion uh, that you and the folks at Sui and others at Move have described as ownership being trapped in a smart contract. Now, in the Ethereum world, you know the ability to you know start a smart contract, be able to you know mint an NFT, et cetera, et cetera. These are all things done on smart contracts. So SUI uses objects as its basic unit of data storage rather than accounts, as it happens on most other blockchains. An object, say a collectible, a PFP, an NFT, that I purchase in SUI resides in my address, which is searchable in the SUI block explorer. So first and foremost, what does this all mean in terms of having this trap this ownership trap in the other smart contracts out there versus what SUI and Move is obviously building right now. Yeah, I mean, it's a very simple example I'll give you that may be shares on light, right? So on Ethereum, and I think on most other blockchains as well, is, well, if you would say purchase goods with a smart contract, you mint an NFT, you purchase some tokens, right? You interact with the smart contract. Okay, so you can almost think about it as a vendor, right? I talk to us, give the vendor some money. I buy a, you know, a PFP. Great. Then later on, as we want to transfer your asset, right? This is yours and yours only. 
wait, you actually need the smart contract's permission to do so, right? You need to talk to the smart contract, say, hey, please update the ownership record to someone else, to another address, right? That's just fundamentally wrong. That's fundamentally very, very, very wrong, right? You don't actually have control over it when your blockchain is supposed to, you know, the whole business of blockchain is be, give you control of ownership of your asset, right? People mm-hmm. may say it's not a big deal, uh, but the fact that it is, right? It's like, you know, it, from an efficiency point of view, everybody's transferring their PAPs all touching the smart contract, right? That's just extremely slow. And it's even worse, right? The smart contract has an internal mapping that tracks ownership records, right? And that is, there's a reason why these things are so slow, right? There's many, many design mistakes there. And, and secondly, right, so this is really, really limit what you can do, right? You cannot say, here's my asset, I take it, and I have another vendor serve me, another smart contract that conform to the type of the information, I understand my asset to service me, right? So it's locked in, right? So the whole point is not to have locked in. Uh, so there's a lot of things wrong with it, right? So for us, right, when we design three, this concept, this ownership data model is very, very important that design around objects, right? Each object is independent. Right, you own it, you take control of it, you can do things with it, you can transfer it without, you know, the contr- without the smart contract. Right. Right. And you can obviously design it such a way that, okay, if it's game assets, right, only the game engine can modify it, right? It's not like free for all, but, you know, ownership transfers yours, right? So uh, it's for yours to control. So so there's a very, very different mental model. It's a very different design yep. uh, to you know, we believe it's it's a very, very powerful model because now we have seen the examples. Like we create uh, three friends. Uh, it's a digital collectible. You can put, you know, accessory addresses on it. And guess what? Someone else can actually create accessories uh, without permission. And you can buy those other people's accessory, other, mm-hmm. you know, vendor's accessory and put on your three friend, right? right. And this is such a small, minor things, but it's powerful, right? <laughs> And also the object model means a lot, right? So, you know, like I always give the example, right? If you have a baseball, you know, you run into the baseball player and you like him, he he signed the baseball for you, right? And that's two things combined into one. Mm-hmm. You can't really do that with the other system because they don't have this concept, right? And here you can't, right? It's it's a baseball, it's an object, signature is an object. You combine them together, boom. Um, right. So, yeah, it's modeling assets correctly. And so I want to just touch on this a little bit more. What role would you say your programming language, as I said, Move, and we'll talk more about the nuances of Move, but what role do you think Move plays uh, in this idea of composability? And again, the idea, as you alluded to, is that if you know you have an NFT, and this has been talked about a lot in the community over the years, if you have an NFT, there's been this idea, this notion of dynamic NFTs, i.e., for those that are gamers out there, there are 3 billion gamers out there. As we know, we've talked about this for years. A gamer may buy a specific avatar for a specific game, and through evolutions, through gameplay, et cetera, et cetera, there is this idea that it can start to evolve. It could start to change. It could start to adapt. And you're saying that in the other models out there, of other blockchains out there, the way they are set up, I'm going to talk more about head of line blocking, which I know is one of your favorite topics. You know, why, you know, what about Move allows the NFTs, specifically NFTs in the SUI landscape 
to have this idea of dynamicism, this idea of you know evolution. Yeah, so so I mean, it's a combination of the language move, right? Allow you to describe an asset properly, right? Not follow some you know ERC seven twenty one standard that allow you to keep a URL with the asset list elsewhere. You actually can describe the type that describe the the asset, right? And then these assets are fully updatable, right? You can say this field is immutable, that field is immutable. People always confuse, right? It's like the record of transactions are immutable. The asset themselves don't have to be immutable, right? The reason why they're immutable is you have a limited standard and standard has to conform basically to the well, lowest common denominator, right? So that's why these ERC721 is very, very basic. And plus you can't really store anything on chain because it's very, very expensive. Right, mm-hmm. we don't have any of that limitations. That's due to our object model, where every object is an object. Right, use conventional means to scale the storage. Right, so you can literally have the object on the blockchain that describe and capture all the information. And why is this important? Well, because now you model the assets life cycle from beginning to end. Right, mm-hmm. asset changes. Right, if you think about playing the game, when you start, is the character one level one. It doesn't have much. By the time you get to level 10, your character has changed significantly and has quite other magic sword and magic shields and other things mm-hmm. like that. That's how asset actually works, right? If you apply it to even supply chain, all that sort of thing, right? Or business contract, these things changes over time, right? So right now you have this model where, well, you have to tokenize something that's basically static, doesn't change anymore. It makes it pretty much not very useful. Because you're only modeling ownership of the underlying asset that lives off chain, which means your smart contract doesn't actually have information about the asset itself, right? Describing the asset, right? Because it's literally just a URL. So it right. doesn't do much with it, cannot do much with it. So again, this is not just move, this is also the object model. That's why we create a sweet move. It's everything coming together. Great. So as I said, as we're getting to the top here, and again, we may have Evan on again to talk more about this because there's a lot here. This is, you know, Mistin came out and uh, obviously we've been living in the world of Ethereum, Solana, AVAX, you know, a few others out there, Flow. Um, there's been a number of, you know, Ethereum competitors. You know, I think Evan definitely believes that they are not an Ethereum competitor. They are far different, and uh, the architecture speaks for itself. But one of the things I wanted to address, and I think you enjoy talking about this, as I said, is what you call head-of-line blocking. In computer networking, it's performance-limiting phenomenon that occurs when a line of packets, packets can be information for those that are just listening here, could be any information in email you know, that I send to Evan and Evan sends to me back and forth. These are packets of information. When a line of packets is held up in queue for by a first packet, so again, if I'm sending multiple emails to Evan, I send one of five emails, uh, that fifth email is not going to get to him because there's probably one or two or three in front of it. And so it is a direct line for the linear. So you have debated that this is one of the main design flaws of other blockchains. And so getting into more specifics, and again, for folks, you know, we're going to make sure that there's information about this. You have a consensus model uh, or consensus uh, mechanism called Narwhal, which is a decilic graph. For those that may be familiar with the industry, uh, projects like IOTA uh, and for all intents and purposes, Hedera have worked on DAGs for the last few years. So why do you believe that this head of line blocking 
infrastructure, this linear kind of passage of information packets is one of the main design flaws of other blockchains. Yeah, so so if you think about it, right, when you're processing a block of transactions, most of these transactions actually conceptually have nothing to do with each other. They have no contention, right? I have a bunch of transactions that's targeting, let's say, a, a DEX, one DEX, and a bunch of other are actually trying to mean AFT. They're sending to a different smart contract, right? But in the current you know, other blockchains model, you processing them all in one go. You're trying to order them, sequence them using consensus, right? Uh, and that is inheriting scale, you know, you know, sequential. So you're doing a lot of wasteful work. You also cannot sort of separate out them out and, and processing a lot of them in parallel, right? Which is what, you know, people in, in, in systems know, right? You just don't, you know, don't add additional constraints and then try to undo them, right? So this is actually a major bottleneck in the processing uh, transactions. Now, uh, it's not about the consensus, actually. You know, whether you use the conventional hostile consensus, you use other con PBFT, it doesn't matter. It's what you do before consensus, right? If you have, if you have dependency information, you have, if, then you know there are groups of transactions there are related. They do need to be sequenced relative to each other, right? If you have 10 transactions targeting the same DEX, they uh -huh. need to be sequenced together. And the other 10 that's targeting the NFT mint, they need to be sequenced together. Then you understand these can be processed in parallel, right? right. And we also have uh, things like if I have my NFT or my audio in this case, I'm just transferring to someone else and transferring to David. Uh -huh. Does this need to be sequenced relative to anything else, right? You right. know, no contention whatsoever. I mean, the only one that has control over it. So that in that case, it doesn't even require consensus. It just gets processed right away. So this is a fundamental flaw of all the other blockchains, right? Because you cannot parallel process them. This is not about parallel execution. This is about parallelizing the entire pipeline by keeping this dependency information and grouping transactions that actually are related. They actually have contention. You can process the groups in parallel. Uh, so, so that's the powerful concept, and that makes SUI infinitely scalable and super fast, especially for transactions that don't require consensus. That's amazing for anyone who's trying to visualize this. You know, I think what Evan is trying to do with the the type of linear type of approach that we're discussing with others, this head of line blocking. Think of the FDR. You know, here in New York. Imagine there was no exits and you're all just trying to go to the same place at the same time and there's no exits. Everyone's got to go in one path and then eventually there's only one exit. That's where you get a lot of traffic from. And so what we'd like to do, Evan, as we let you go soon is what should we, you know, the listeners out there that are listening to the audience, what should we be looking for in terms of missing labs, you know, Sui and move for the next few months, any kind of things that we should be watching and keeping on the radar? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things, right? One, we're still very, very early. We, you know, we 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 now focus on helping our partners launching their products on 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 suite, right? You know, it's it's not about hey, here's a chain, go build it, right? We want to, them to be successful. We help them with go to market, uh, acquire customer. You know, a lot of game partners, you know, are working with us on these. So a lot more projects coming, a lot more innovative projects coming. A lot more is going to utilize the chains in very, very interesting ways. The other things that you should look forward to is ZK logging, right? Imagine 
using zero knowledge proof uh, to produce a test station uh, that's tied to your Web2 identity on chain, mm. right? Allow anybody basically using Google, for example, Google login to create an account and you don't have to manage your keys and all that. Um, you know, so more work around this uh, and more, you know, that that's about use product experience that people expect to have in Web2 without compromising the underlying security and the properties of a decentralized internet. So a lot more of these things come and, and like everything we do is not just about just technology. We actually show examples. Uh, this is why it's powerful. This is how you incorporate into products that fundamentally mm-hmm. how people experience Web3. That's very powerful right there. And I'm, we're definitely going to be looking forward to that one. You know, as I said again, the the way that you know the industry has been, you know, making the new users out there go to wallets and do things that are outside of their normal user behavior. If you're able to abstract that away and just make it a very simple experience, whether biometrically or other, uh, that could be incredibly powerful. So we'll definitely keep our eyes on that. Evan Chang, uh, co-founder and CEO of Missing Labs, thank you for being with us today on Base Layer, and we'll hopefully have you on again soon. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you'd like to show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.